with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm a senior writer for HowStuffWorks.com, where you know what we do. We explain the universe. And this topic today is all about a little exchange that happened online over the course of several days. Uh, Actually, it started with Elon Musk, and he was addressing a governmental body and talking about his view that artificial intelligence needs to have strict regulations attached to it in order to prevent some sort of catastrophic future, possibly Skynet-related, where the robots and other artificial intelligent constructs rise up against their human masters and crush us under their metaphorical or perhaps literal boots. And then you had Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook on a live broadcast on Facebook Live uh, from his backyard during a barbecue. He was asked a question about this sort of thing, and he specifically said that he thought this was a very pessimistic view of the future of artificial intelligence, and that within five or ten years, artificial intelligence would be transforming our lives in ways that we can't even imagine, and they would all be awesome and fantastic and magical, and we should love that. And then Musk struck back on Twitter and said that he had talked to Zuckerberg about this process before, but frankly, Zuckerberg just is out of his depth with artificial intelligence. It's not something that he's an expert at, and he's really speaking from inexperience. I find this exchange amusing, as does a lot of the journalist uh, area of technology. I mean, we've got a lot of people who are commenting on this. But personally, uh, I also find it a little confounding because uh, Elon Musk has said some stuff that contradicts his own company's policies, if you look at it carefully. Um, He has specifically resisted the concept of regulations for self-driving cars, but you could argue very uh, realistically and convincingly, I would say, that self-driving cars are an implementation of artificial intelligence. So we're going to dive into this. We're going to look at the different opinions about artificial intelligence, kind of explore the concept of artificial intelligence in general, see where it came from and what does it really mean and who's right. Or as I put it in my notes, Musk's position is AI without regulation is going to totally kill us, dude. And Zuckerberg's position is AI is going to improve our lives in countless ways, brah. So who's right or neither of them right? Well, To start off with, let's talk about the birth of the term artificial intelligence. It was coined by John McCarthy, who passed away in 2011 at the age of 84. He worked at Stanford as a professor emeritus of computer science, and he also co-founded the Artificial Intelligence Project at MIT, as well as the Stanford Artificial Intelligence Lab, so somebody who certainly has had uh, a long and storied past in the development of artificial intelligence. He first used the term artificial intelligence in a proposal for a summer research conference at Dartmouth in 1955. It was the first time the term ever appeared in a printed publication. So what is artificial intelligence? I mean, it's such a huge term has been used by so many people that it's lost a lot of its meaning. Also, I should point out that John McCarthy, I mentioned earlier, 
as uh, one of the creators of Lisp, the programming language that was used in artificial intelligence. So if the name sounds familiar, it means that you listen to the History of Programming Languages episodes or that you're just familiar with John McCarthy's work. But yeah, artificial intelligence is one of those terms that since its introduction has been used to describe so many different things and used in such a vague way so many times that for many people, it seems like a meaningless term. It's almost like it's just a a, a general catch-all for the scary possibilities of technology that gets away from us. It reminds me of Humpty Dumpty in Through the Looking Glass. He says that uh, that words mean exactly what he wants them to mean neither more nor less. He says, you know, who is to be the master? That is the only thing that's important. I'm more in charge than the words are. So if I use a word to mean something, that's what it means. That's what I feel artificial intelligence has become for a lot of people. And I also think that that's what leads to a lot of disagreements, that some people have one idea of what artificial intelligence is, and other people have a totally different idea of what artificial intelligence is. But because they're both using the phrase artificial intelligence, it seems like they're talking about the same thing. And that's why they're hitting some massive disagreements, or at least one of the reasons why they are disagreeing. It's really because if you dig down further, they're talking about two different things frequently. Now, John McCarthy's use of artificial intelligence was given this context in his proposal, quote, the study is to proceed on the basis of the conjecture that every aspect of learning or any other feature of intelligence can, in principle, be so precisely described that a machine can be made to simulate it, end quote. Here's the lovely thing about that definition. It already is vague because it's talking about the every aspect of learning or any other feature of intelligence. We have not fully defined what intelligence is within the human experience. Uh, there are aspects of intelligence that are very vague and fuzzy, and we only have kind of a partial understanding of what it actually is. An example I might give is consciousness. Defining consciousness is a particularly troublesome and difficult thing to do in human beings, let alone in machines. So we know that consciousness is a manifestation of the brain. The idea of the mind being a manifestation of the brain, all of this is dependent upon actual physical matter, the gray matter in our heads. And we know this because various uh, diseases, disorders, injuries that affect consciousness are the ones that are affecting the brain. It's If you uh, suffer an injury to the brain that is in one of these areas that define consciousness, your sense of consciousness is likewise affected. That tells us that there is this physical connection, that there's not this metaphysical mind necessarily that is a layer on top of our physical brains. But beyond that, defining consciousness is really tricky. And there are plenty of psychologists, neurologists, philosophers who have debated the nature of consciousness for ages, and we're no closer to really defining it than we were back then. Sometimes we narrow it down by saying what isn't consciousness, so we're whittling it away, kind of the way the sculptor whittles away everything that isn't a statue when they start with a block of marble. You know, you just say, all right, you want to carve an elephant? Here's your block of marble. 
cut all the stuff that doesn't look like an elephant away. And what you're left with is the elephant. That might be what consciousness is for us. We remove all of the concepts that are not consciousness and whatever's left over, that becomes our definition. It's not exactly satisfying at the moment. Well, McCarthy expounded on artificial intelligence in 1960 in a paper titled Programs with Common Sense, which kind of gives you another perspective of what artificial intelligence could be. And this leads us to ask other questions like what exactly kind what what are the implementations of artificial intelligence what what types are there and again the number of types of ai depends upon whom you ask and how they frame the answer there are simple answers where some people will say oh there's two types of ai there's strong ai and there's weak ai or some people will say general ai and narrow ai Others will say, no, 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 there's like 33 types of artificial intelligence. Or they might say there's three or four types of artificial intelligence. With those two types, those are the easiest to kind of explain in broad categorizations. Narrow or weak AI is the artificial intelligence we would create that's dedicated to a narrow task or series of tasks. Strong AI is generally understood to mean a machine that has sentience, consciousness, and mind, those qualities that we associate with human intelligence. But again, we cannot even fully describe those concepts within the context of humans. So trying to figure out how to imbue machines with those elements is even more complicated. Now, there's also the concept of general intelligence. This is not reliant upon consciousness or mind or sentience. With general intelligence, the idea is that a machine would be able to apply intelligence to any problem rather than just a specific or narrow band of problems. So in other words, a generally intelligent machine could be used to solve problems of various degrees and various uh, contexts. So you might have a general intelligence robot and the general intelligence robot can do things like figure out how to manipulate physical objects, how to maneuver around within an environment, uh, and a few other elements as well. It's having a more general approach to problem solving, as opposed to something that was made specifically to handle a particular task. Uh, but general intelligence, true general intelligence, would be capable of applying an intelligent approach to any kind of problem, not just a related family of problems. In an article for Government Technology, there was a writer named uh, Arend Hintz of Michigan State University who laid out four broad categories of artificially intelligent machines. And these would go well into pretty sophisticated artificial intelligence from the very get-go. Uh, I argue that artificial intelligence is composed of lots of different facets, and you can find elements of artificial intelligence in many different programs that exist today, none of which are approaching this general intelligence model and certainly not approaching strong AI. But here's how Hintz breaks it down. He says, type one is a reactive kind of intelligence. These are machines that take action in response to some state. 
and they don't form memories. They don't use past experience to inform current decisions. And he argues Deep Blue, IBM's Deep Blue, was that kind of a machine. And Deep Blue was the computer that defeated Garry Kasparov in a series of chess matches in the 1990s. Actually, the first series ended in a draw between the two. The second series, Deep Blue won, and then IBM quickly um, ended up retiring Deep Blue from that point forward. But Deep Blue would just look at the state of the chessboard at any given moment and then make a decision based upon that state when it was Deep Blue's turn. It didn't build up a series of decisions. It didn't track what was happening turn over turn. Uh, so it didn't evolve in any way. It had no internal representation of the world. It just would look at what was happening right now and make a decision. Now, there was a researcher named Rodney Brooks, an AI researcher, who said these type 1 machines are the only ones we should ever try to make because... To make a machine more intelligent, one that contains a virtual representation of the world, would be impossible. That we, as humans, would be incapable of building a virtual representation that is accurate enough for such a machine to make good decisions. It would have a faulty representation of the world, and therefore any decision it would make would not be ideal, and it would potentially do more harm than good. Uh, these sorts of machines are always going to make the same decision given a certain set of criteria. So let's go back with Deep Blue. Let's say that Deep Blue is looking at the board, the chess board. It is Deep Blue's turn. It's been maybe, you know, a half dozen turns in the chess game. And it makes a decision based upon all the positions of the pieces that are in play at that time. This decision is based on the probabilities of other uh, moves that the opponent might make, the strength of any given move against what the current conditions are. There are a lot of factors that go into that one decision. But the argument goes that type 1 machines will always come to the same conclusion given that same set of criteria. So in other words, if in game 1, Deep Blue is given this arrangement of pieces, it will make a specific decision by weighing all those options out and going with the best one. In game two, if that exact same configuration of pieces were to be presented to Deep Blue, and it's Deep Blue's turn, it would make the same decision in that case. It's not going to improvise. It's not going to change. It's not going to learn from its past experiences. It is just going to make a decision based upon the parameters that are in front of it at that very moment. Now, this is not necessarily a bad thing. You may want certain artificially intelligent machines to be very predictable in their response. If you have a smart thermostat and it's been trained to learn what you prefer over time, and it's learned that you like it cool in the mornings, so you like a nice maybe 70 degrees for your thermostat, Fahrenheit, that is, obviously, uh, it's not going to improvise one day and say, you know what, I'm just going to try something here. I bet he's really going to like it if I set it to 88 degrees Fahrenheit on a humid Georgia July morning. Let's see what happens next. What happens next is Jonathan just sweats like crazy. So there are implementations where you would want a type 1 AI machine and nothing more advanced than that. 
Then type 2 intelligent machines would be ones that have at least some version of a memory. They can track changing variables over time and analyze past behavior before making a decision on a course of action. Now, this memory doesn't go into a lexicon of memories. It's like short-term memory that never gets converted into long-term memory. It's stored temporarily, kind of like random access memory is in computers. And then after that short while, it can be overwritten. These machines would be able to do a little bit more than what Deep Blue could do. It wouldn't just be making a decision based upon the current state of the game. It would also remember how the last few moves went and what brought it there and how the other player had been playing and might be able to take that information and uh, incorporate that in its decisions for the following moves, which means it could potentially adapt its play style. So this is a slightly more sophisticated version of the intelligent machine. Now we've got two more types of intelligent machines to cover. But before I jump into type 3 and type 4 and then go further into this discussion about artificial intelligence, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Now, a type 3 intelligent machine incorporates what Hintz says is a theory of mind. These machines would have an internal concept of the world as well as the beings that actually inhabit that world, and an understanding that those beings also possess intelligence that guide their behaviors. Uh, in a way, you could think of this as awareness of others. So these machines would know that people aren't just bags of meat that do things, that we have intelligence and that that, in fact, guides our behaviors, and understanding that then affects the decisions that the AI makes. But this is still not quite at that level of strong AI that I was mentioning earlier. To get there, you have to hit type 4 machine intelligence, and that is when you hit self-awareness, where a machine is not just aware that other beings possess the quality of intelligence, but it is aware of its own self and its own state and its own being in relation with everything else. Uh, it is this sort of machine that could, in theory, start to design improvements to itself. So it could be recursive in that it is able to uh, make improvements and then you get into the situation that some futurists think of as the singularity, where you have self-improving artificially intelligent machines that are able to evolve at such a remarkable rate where every generation of improvements is a huge leap from the last one and it's taking less and less time between generations for things to change that it becomes impossible to describe what the present set of circumstances are because the present would be changing so quickly that it becomes a meaningless concept. This is the singularity. Uh, that is one potential outcome of this instance, if it were in fact possible, which we don't know if it is possible yet. Uh, it, it, some people treat it as a foregone conclusion that we will eventually have machines that will be able to attain self-awareness and potentially self-improvement. And once you get to that stage, how do you avoid this singularity? 
people would argue that's impossible to avoid. But there are a lot of people who say, we have no reason to believe that this is something that is going to happen or that it's even possible from a technological perspective or it may be possible from a technological perspective, but we're talking decades, if not a century or more out in front of us based upon our limited understanding of intelligence and our limited amount of processing power when you compare it to something like the human mind. Uh, keeping in mind that the human brain has got billions of neurons in it and we have artificial neuron networks, but they are dwarfed by the connections that you find in the human brain. So there's a lot of heated debate in the artificial intelligent world about whether or not this is something we should even concern ourselves with. But some people say that self-awareness could arise from a system that has a given amount of complexity without us having any deeper understanding of what consciousness is. In other words, if you were to make a machine that was complex enough, consciousness could be an emergent behavior, something that naturally occurs once you reach a, a system of significant complexity. That's a little difficult to wrap your head around. But keep in mind, we humans have been harnessing and creating stuff without having a full understanding of it for ages. We were using electricity well before we understood the actual physics of electricity. So it's a little different. I mean, you can't compare electricity to consciousness directly. It doesn't make any sense. But just to say there is precedence in human beings creating something that they do not fully understand. Uh, whether or not that's actually possible, however, is it, it we don't know. There's no way for us to answer. There is no construct, no machine complex enough for us to run an experiment and see if consciousness arises. And if it does arise, how do we recognize it? How do we know that a machine actually possesses that that feature? How do we know a machine truly has become self-aware and conscious? We'll talk about that a little bit more later on, because, of course, there are a lot of people who have come up with ideas on how we would judge whether or not a machine had achieved consciousness. And some of them are more serious than others. There's also some serious objections. Well, those are the four types that were laid out by this one person from Michigan State University. But then uh, John Spacey over on Simplicable has an article where he talks about 33 types of artificial intelligence. 33. Now, I'm not going to go through all 33. And I also want to point out that the 33 types he points out are really more like 33 facets of artificial intelligence. It's not 33 degrees of artificial intelligence where we start with dumb machine and we end with super smart robo master. It's more like different aspects of intelligence that are in various stages of development and research in the artificial intelligence field. <clears throat> so it's not really separate categories. It's more like specific implementations of intelligence. An example would be effective computing, effective being A-F-F-E-C-T-I-V-E, -E, as in to affect something. Effective computing tries to suss out the emotions people are experiencing 
and to behave appropriately according to the parameters of the programming, not according to social rules necessarily. So these are machines that would be able to recognize emotions and respond in a way that was appropriate compared to their actual programming. Another type that Spacey lists is computer vision, which is the area of computer science focused on analyzing and understanding visual information computationally. So I've talked about this in episodes of Tech Stuff in the past. You've heard about various projects to train computers to recognize images like pictures of cats versus other stuff like pictures of DeLoreans. So this, as it turns out, is really hard to do. This is one of those gaps we see between human intelligence and machine intelligence. Uh, even with deep learning and artificial neural networks, this is really tricky stuff. It doesn't take a long time to teach your typical human concepts that they can then apply across a broad spectrum of examples. So I like to use the, the example, the specific example of a coffee mug or just a mug. A mug. So imagine a mug. Now, the mug you are imagining probably looks a certain way, but if I were to show you a totally different mug, you would recognize that as a mug, even if it was a different size, a different color, different shape of the handle, different shape of the container itself. As long as it adhered to the general parameters that we associate with the concept of a mug you know what I was talking about. You would know that that was a mug. Computers, not that good at this, right? Like, it might require you to train a computer by showing it thousands or tens of thousands of images of mugs so that it builds up the various elements that define mugness so that if it were to look at a brand new image of a mug that is unlike all the others that have preceded it, it would still be able to identify that as, yes, that is a mug. This is hard to do. We've seen some advances in this field, but it demonstrates the huge gap in that specific part of intelligence between machines and humans. That isn't to say that it's not getting better with machines. It is. But that's just one example that I wanted to give. And it kind of hammers home this idea that general intelligence with machines is a long way off. There's just so many different aspects of it. Um, beyond this, Spacey continues to define various terms within AI, and I don't necessarily think of them as types of artificial intelligence, but again, aspects of artificial intelligence. Not every AI implementation will need all of these aspects. Some of them are going to be much better with a very narrow range of artificial intelligent features. For example, your Roomba probably does not need to be able to pick up on what your mood is, whether or not you're sad or anything along those lines. But if you are talking about a machine that needs to have general intelligence in order to solve any given problem in front of it, it will need to have many, if not all, of those aspects of artificial intelligence in order to uh, address any problem presented to it. So this kind of gives you an idea of why talking about artificial intelligence is tricky. 
because people are thinking about it in very different terms. Some people focus on the specific elements within artificial intelligence that are aspects of general intelligence or aspects of human intelligence, but they're very specific. It's not general AI. Like, it's not an intelligent machine that you could hold a conversation with. It's more about a specific element of being able to analyze information and make uh, conclusions based on that information and potentially end up making a course of action based on those conclusions. There's so many different aspects of that within human intelligence that it makes it tricky to just say AI and paint with that broad a brush. I think that ends up being misleading. Now, next, I'm going to dive into some interesting ways of thinking about AI, as in, can you determine whether or not a machine actually does possess intelligence? How would we know that? How does one get to the conclusion that a machine can actually be intelligent? So if you were to look at something like at Stanford, there was a computer program, a machine designed that could uh, observe the movements of a pendulum. And based upon those movements and multiple observations of those movements, the machine was able to suss out the basic laws of motion just by looking at the movements of a pendulum. It was able to analyze those movements and come up with the laws of motion over the course of several hours, which had taken humans centuries to do. Is that truly an intelligent machine? It doesn't necessarily understand anything else. It might be very intelligent, that specific implementation. How do we know when a machine is intelligent? We'll take a look at some potential answers of that question in just a minute. But first, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. Okay, so we've got Musk and Zuckerberg butting heads about whether or not artificial intelligence is going to end us. Let's say that we're getting to a point where artificial intelligence is approaching something that is similar to what most people think of when they hear artificial intelligence. I argue that most people, when they hear AI, they think of a machine that's capable of processing information in a way that is analogous to the way humans think. Now, I know that you guys realize artificial intelligence covers a whole spectrum of topics, of computer sciences, of psychology, uh, of data processing that don't necessarily equate directly to thinking like a human being. But the average person, I would say, thinks AI means that a computer, quote unquote, thinks the way a human does. How would we know when we reach that point? Well, a lot of people like to point at the Turing test because it's largely through a misunderstanding of what the Turing test was, named after Alan Turing. Uh, it was proposed in 1950. The Turing test is interesting because Turing was saying, uh, if you were to create an artificially intelligent machine, not even artificially intelligent, if you were to create a machine that could converse with a person in such a way that the person could not be certain that the entity they talked to was either another human being or a machine, 
you would have to say that that machine possessed intelligence. It would pass the Turing test is the way we often will uh, say it today. So typically you see experiments run in this way. Contests are frequently held to see if uh, any chatbots can beat the Turing test. And the way it typically works is that you have a series of online interactions and uh, people will go through, they'll log into a computer terminal and there'll be a text-based communications platform like instant messaging or a chat room, something along those lines. They type in their and their their questions, their sentences, their introductions, whatever it may be, and then they are getting responses back. Those responses may be from another human being or they may be from a computer. And essentially they say that if a certain percentage of the people going through this process are incapable of reliably detecting whether it's a human or a computer they're talking to, then the computer is said to have passed the Turing test because it is able to replicate the behaviors of a person so realistically as to be indistinguishable from a person. And Turing would say, if you were to encounter another human being and that person was to hold a conversation with you, you would go ahead and assume that that other human being possesses the quality of intelligence. We cannot be sure that anyone we interact with possesses intelligence because we cannot inhabit that person's being. If I have a conversation with you and you are talking back with me, I can't be sure that you're intelligent because I cannot be you, just as you cannot be sure I am intelligent because you cannot be me. But based upon my sentences to you, my communication with you, the fact that I'm listening to you, responding to what you have to say, and you in turn are doing the same with me, we would assume we each possess that quality known as intelligence. And Turing said, if a machine can fool you into thinking it's a person, you might as well extend it the same courtesy. If you cannot tell that it's a machine and you would assume that a human being would have intelligence, then why would you not assume the machine itself to have intelligence? This is sort of a cheeky way of talking about machine intelligence. I remember this preceded coining the phrase artificial intelligence in the first place. So Turing was kind of having a little bit of fun with this. And there have been contests to create chatbots to see if they could beat the Turing test. And there have been at least two or three that have said, yes, we did it, but they all kind of have a little asterisk after them. So, for example, there was one from a few years ago where a a group had built a chatbot that was claiming to be a young boy who did not speak English as his first language, but all the communications had to be in English. That was part of the actual event. All of the chatbots were supposed to communicate in English and all the people who were interacting were supposed to be communicating in English as well. But this construct was claiming to be a young boy from, I want to say, uh, a, a, uh, a, from Russia or from the Ukraine. It might have been a Ukrainian uh, identity. 
And the boy did not have a very deep understanding of pop culture in the West uh, and had a lot of limitations. But because it, those limitations were known, you know, if you're communicating with this chatbot and the chatbot claims to be a young boy from the Ukraine and doesn't speak English as a first language, you're going to cut that chatbot a lot of slack because you're going to think, well, anything that appears out of the ordinary as far as syntax or grammar is concerned is probably because English is not his first language. Any gaps in knowledge are due to the fact that, one, he has limited exposure to the same sort of things that I have experienced, and he's young, so he's not going to know a lot about older pop culture references. When you start putting those limitations in, where you expect less from the person you're communicating with because of those limitations, it becomes easier as kind of a tricky word, but I'll go ahead and use it, easier to fool someone into thinking that the chatbot is an actual person because their their level of expectation has been lowered based upon the actual scenario. There has not been to date a chatbot that has beaten the Turing test as uh, representing a person who natively speaks the language in question with a reasonable uh, body of knowledge about the world and how the world works. No chatbot has come close to that yet. Even if it did, would you say that such a chatbot actually possessed true intelligence? Or would it just seem like it did? So let's look at Watson, IBM's platform that was famous for winning a game of Jeopardy against two former champions. It was able to come up with questions for the various answers. That's the way Jeopardy works. If you're not familiar with the game show Jeopardy, uh, the clues are given to you in the form of an answer. You have to come up with a question that relates to that. Uh, so if you said, if it said, uh, he is credited with inventing the light bulb, you would say, who was Thomas Edison? Well, uh, Watson, this IBM construct, this this collection of APIs really is what it is, uh, was on top of an enormous platform of, of uh, computers with thousands of processors to, to run all the number crunching that was going on behind the scenes. It had a big, big database of information, and it was able to weigh potential responses to any given clue and if it reached a certain threshold of uh, confidence, it would submit that as its response. So let's say it was an 80% confidence. I think it was around the 80% mark. If the machine goes through its various databases, finds something that meets a match with the clue with 80% confidence or greater, it would buzz in and submit that. And more often than not, it was right. But was it truly intelligent? Because it could seem to understand things like wordplay and references that were not direct references. It seemed very clever. But you wouldn't say that it actually possesses the same sort of intelligence that a human being does, even with that implementation. One of the biggest objections, or, or rather 
challenges to machine intelligence and whether or not, not a machine could ever be intelligent is called the Chinese Room Argument. Now, this was proposed by John Searle, S-E-A-R-L-E. It's a philosophical thought experiment that really challenges this idea that machines could be said to think or possess intelligence. And he creates an analogy to computers to show how a machine might appear to understand what's happening and yet not have any actual intrinsic understanding. So he says, let's take an experiment. Let's say that you are locked in a room. And in that room, you've got a table, you've got some paper, you've got a pen, and you've got an enormous book of instructions. And occasionally, somebody from outside the room slips a piece of paper under the door. And when you pick up the paper, it has a Chinese symbol on it. And you don't understand Chinese. You, you only speak English in this scenario. Even if you are a multilingual out there, just imagine for the moment that you only understand English. The book you have, the set of instructions, has all these different Chinese symbols, Chinese characters inside the book with specific instructions of what to do when you get any particular Chinese character. So you look at the one that's on your page that's been slipped under the door, and you go through the book and you look for a match. And you find a match and it says, when you get this symbol, draw this other symbol and then slip it under the door. So you do. You draw this other symbol and you slip it under the door. Now, to a person outside the room, it looks like you understand what is happening. Uh, you have, that person outside the room has written down something in Chinese, slipped it under the door, and received a response in Chinese in return. So to that person, you appear to be understanding what's going on. But to you, because you're monolingual, you only speak English, you only understand English, you don't actually understand what those symbols mean. You don't know what the symbols coming in mean, and you don't know what the symbols you're writing mean. You're just following a set of very specific instructions. Searle says that's what machines are doing. They might appear to be understanding you, but really they're just following instructions based upon the input they receive. And there's no deeper level than that. It's really, when they boil down to it, a grand if-then statement. If you receive this, then deliver that. Which is an interesting idea to say that the person inside the room doesn't understand Chinese. They don't, they don't know the meaning of the symbols in either direction, but they're still delivering properly based upon following those instructions. Could a computer be said to be intelligent if that's all it's ultimately doing? There are objections to this argument. One of them, I'm just going to illustrate one, is that the person in the room is not the whole system. They're one component of the system. In a computer, you could argue the person represents the processor, for example, and maybe the book represents the memory. But if you were to take the whole thing, the room, the book, the person, the paper, the pen, you group all of that together as a system, some people say, well, no, the system itself as a whole, quote-unquote, 
understands Chinese, even if the one component within the system does not. Searle said, I call shenanigans on that argument, because what if you just memorize all the instructions? So you've internalized it all. You know everything you're supposed to do whenever you are uh, encountering a specific Chinese character. You see the Chinese character, you know what the response is supposed to be. You don't have to consult a book or anything. You still don't understand what it is you're doing. You're just following the instructions that you know you're supposed to follow. That, Searle says, does not represent intelligence. Now, there are a lot of other objections to Searle's thought experiment. There's a lot of heated debate about the Chinese room argument, and it's all very fascinating. And if you think this is interesting, you should definitely look up Chinese room argument because there's a lot that's been written about it. And it's amazing to really put your mind to it and start thinking about the philosophy of intelligence and whether or not it would ever be possible for us to truly determine if a machine possessed that quality. But there are some practical things that we should consider, too. Now, again, Musk was worried about machines potentially turning on people. I mean, the example he gave was a robot going down the street and killing everybody, uh, deciding to do this. Now, it's entirely possible for a robot that has any sort of deadly uh, abilities, whether it's a, a soldier robot or something else, there's possibilities of malfunctions or misidentifying someone as a target as opposed to a, uh, you know, a, an innocent person. And in those cases, you would say, well, that's clearly a programming error, but it's not like the machine is deciding to turn against humans. It's more like the machine is making an incorrect con conclusion based upon its programming. And again, you might say, well, that doesn't have anything to do with artificial intelligence. It doesn't have anything to do, at least intrinsically, with this concept of AI. Uh, and if you were to create regulations, how do you regulate that? How do you regulate artificial intelligence? Where do you put the limitations? What, at what point do you say, don't let computers do this? Because if you cannot define the problem, how do you create the limitation? to prevent the problem from happening. And a lot of people argue that no one is able to really define what this problem is. People are worried about an abstract concept that they cannot define, and therefore there's no way to create a regulation that is remotely uh, relatable to the issue. If you can't define the problem, you cannot create a solution to it. Some people point at different problems, not an existential crisis, where robots are seeking us out and turning us into fertilizer, but perhaps a, a future where automation itself is taking away enough jobs to cause uh, uh, massive economic crises. And there's been a lot written about this over the last few years. It seems like every month another article comes out with either a terribly pessimistic uh, prediction of how many jobs will be lost due to automation within the next five years, or a completely optimistic point of view of how many jobs are going to be created as a result of automation, and therefore people are going to have better jobs. Those who are all for automation say the jobs that are going to be 
uh, phased out by automation are going to be the ones that people don't want to do in the first place. They're going to be the dirty, dangerous, and dull jobs. So jobs that are either repetitive and are not interesting and therefore no one wants to do them. Uh, jobs that put people at risk and therefore it would be better to put a machine at risk because you can replace a machine, but you can't really replace a human. Or the jobs that are uh, just not like they, they they take too much in human effort to do, uh, and it, the the payoff does not equal the amount of effort needed in order to complete the job. There are others who say, well, automation is going to go to jobs that are the easiest to automate, which are not always going to necessarily be ones that fall into those categories. And then you've got people who may be in an area of the workforce where they don't have the training or education to pursue jobs that are at a higher level, necessarily. There are counter arguments to this as well. Some people say that automation will create more jobs because they'll create more opportunities. Uh, with the example of, say, something like the automation of an Amazon warehouse, one of the arguments is that automation will bring prices down. As prices come down, people will buy more. As people buy more, these warehouses will have to get bigger. As the warehouses get bigger, more humans will be needed, even though each human will be responsible for less stuff, there'll be such a large demand for things that that will more than compensate for it. This argument is based off the Industrial Revolution. When the loom was created and people were starting to realize the potential of the loom to speed up weaving quite a bit, there were real concerns that the loom was going to plunge the world into poverty because all these people who had been making a, a living weaving would suddenly find themselves out of work. The truth is that there was a, a much greater call for weavers because the price of woven materials began to fall. More people began to buy them. And then there was an increased demand for the very thing that people were afraid was going to become a rarity. And so People became weavers. It's just that they were weaving with looms instead of hand weaving. So there are those optimists who say this revolution with automation is going to be the same thing. Others say no, because it will happen way too fast. Automation is going to change so quickly and so dramatically the world that we will not be able to react to it in that same way. And we will be plunged into an economic crisis. People like Elon Musk have argued that this means we should probably look at something like a universal basic income, where everyone is guaranteed a certain amount of money per year by the government so that they can live. They can, they can meet their, their necessary requirements for the basics of human existence, like food and shelter and clothing. Those who can still have work will be able to afford more. This leads to some saying that Mark Zuckerberg's response of, hey, automation and AI is going to provide lots of amazing stuff for us is accurate, but only for people in Zuckerberg's class, people who are already at a level of wealth and privilege where they will be able to enjoy those benefits because their jobs are not in danger of being automated the way other jobs are. So there is a different crisis that's on the horizon, according to many 
people, and it all has to do with automation, not just artificial intelligence. Automation doesn't have to incorporate a whole lot of AI in order for it to be a threat to jobs. But the verdict is still out as to how great a disruption it really will be and whether or not people will be left behind or that we truly will find new jobs for people, new opportunities will arise that will uh, end up being superior to what they would have done otherwise. It's an unanswered question, but it's one that a lot more people are asking. It is not directly related to what Musk and Zuckerberg were bickering about, however. So I was looking over some information about various jobs that are have the potential of becoming automated. And uh, I found one in the atlas.com that was pretty interesting. According to this research, the jobs that have the most potential for being automated include accommodation and food services at a whopping 73% potential for automation. Now, that does not mean that all those jobs will be automated, but it does mean that it is the most likely out of all the different categories listed to undergo automation. Other ones that are high up on the list include manufacturing, transportation and warehousing, which we're seeing with Amazon, uh, agriculture, retail trade is at 57%, mining's at 53%. The ones that are at the lowest end include educational services at 27%, management at 35%, and boy howdy is that going to cause an, a rift if that is true. And then there's a vague category called professionals at 35%. I'm assuming professionals means people who are working white-collar jobs that have a lot of variety to them and not folks named Leon who go around with pistols. That's a Leon the Professional reference. So is Musk right? Are we going to see AI rise up against humans? I don't think that's going to happen in the near future. I think AI does pose some challenges. And if it is incorporated in ways that uh, we don't fully think about, it can cause at least short-term harm, if not long-term harm. But I don't think it's an existential crisis. I don't think it's something that we need to worry about regulation at the moment. Zuckerberg's argument that it's going to improve all our lives, I don't quite buy that either. I think that it will... Uh, have minor impact on most people's lives from a, from a direct perspective. If automation does end up affecting more people, then obviously that's a negative impact. I think they're both slightly wrong. And there have been some writers who have suggested that perhaps this argument's not really about AI, but more about Zuckerberg and Musk both promoting images of themselves. The argument's not really about artificial intelligence. It's about, I stand for this. That's what my reputation is based on. Therefore, I need to continue uh, in this vein. And I find it particularly interesting that Musk is talking about AI being this potentially dangerous situation, since it is an, a very important component of both Tesla and SpaceX. And so he's walking a very fine line. It's also an important component of his proposed tunnel system from the Boring Company, which is all about Earth boring machines, not 
things that are dull. So it's an interesting debate. I'm not going to get involved in it online because neither Musk nor Zuckerberg know who I am. And honestly, I think I prefer it that way. But I'm curious to hear what you guys think about this AI debate. Do you think that we're in an existential crisis or heading toward one? Or do you think it's much ado about nothing? I'm curious. Let me know. Send me messages. My email is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can always drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle of both of those for the show is techstuffhsw. Remember, you can go to www.twitch.tv slash techstuff to watch me record these episodes live. You can chat with me in the chat room and uh, just go to twitch.tv slash techstuff. You'll find the schedule right there. I record Wednesdays and Fridays. I hope to see you in there. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 